Bio Insights Podcast. I'm Roisin McGuigan, an editor with Bio Insights, and in this episode, we'll be looking at the important lessons the cell and gene therapy industry has gleaned from paediatrics and how they can be used to treat adult cancers. Joining me today, we have Sean Werner, who is Chief Technology Officer, Cell Processing at BioLife Solutions. Sean has previous experience filling various roles in the global regulatory and general management functions, supporting medical devices, autologous cell therapy, and single-use disposable development programs. In his 15 years working in the life science industry, he has guided preclinical and clinical testing and submission strategies, leading to global commercialization of multiple medical devices and bioprocessing tools. Joining Sean is Chris Brown the Director of GMP Manufacturing within the Therapeutic Cell Production Core at Seattle Children's Therapeutics GMP Cell Manufacturing Facility. He leads the facility's manufacturing and process development team and played a key role in initial design, stand-up and ongoing development of the TCPC facilities, team and manufacturing methodologies. He has more than 20 years of experience in the manufacturing of cellular products for phase one and two clinical trials, with a focus on translating cutting edge research into first in human cellular therapeutics. So first off, thank you both for joining me today, and I'm really looking forward to our discussion. To begin, can you both tell me a bit about the current work that you do? And Sean, if you'd like to kick us off. My name is Sean Warner. I am currently the Chief Technical Officer for the Cell Processing Platform at BioLife Solutions. And Chris, coming to you. Good morning. My name is Chris Brown. I am the director of GMP Manufacturing at the Therapeutic Cell Production Corps, which is Seattle Children's uh, Cell Manufacturing Facility within the Seattle Children's Therapeutics Organization. Thank you both. And we'll now delve into our first question. What lessons has the cell and gene therapy industry learned from pediatric therapies that can be applied to developing cell therapies for other indications, such as adult cancers and solid tumors? And Chris, I'll come to you here first. Uh, sure. I think one of the uh, one of the real drivers that we have learned from pediatric therapies is uh, the requirement to uh, to do what we can with a relatively small starting number of cells. Um, the work on uh, pediatric patients often involves smaller apheresis products, or in some cases, actually. Uh, peripheral blood as a starting material, and that does sort of limit uh, the size of the culture that. Um, one can target and the upfront manipulations, which may or may not be possible or necessary. Uh, and obviously being able to manufacture a product with a smaller starting material uh, is a benefit for all sorts of trials, just in terms of the number of shots on goal you might have in the event of a manufacturing failure or something along those lines. Thank you. And Sean, would you agree with those points? Yeah, I think it's really interesting to consider the the limited starting material as a key element of that and thinking through what we as an overall industry hope to, to be coming to, which is larger um, larger scale manufacturing, moving from the autologous into the allogeneic type therapies and 
um, trying to understand how people working on those pediatric therapies have overcome the limitations um, and then apply that uh, to making sure that something is actually manufacturable once you are targeting those other indications. So when it comes to the development of cell therapies for these indications, what for you represents the cutting edge in regards to tools and technology? And where is there improvement or innovation most needed to meet both immediate and longer term needs? Sean, can I get your thoughts here? Yeah, so as it's kind of interesting if you think of cell therapy as kind of the next step in the development of our overall pharmaceutical industry. And, and I think what's really the cutting edge is for us to take a step back a little bit more towards what say large molecule pharma has with really closed systems and integration up and down the, the chain in terms of the, the unit operations. I think it, it, from my perspective, the industry largely developed out of academic work and individual tools that were borrowed from other industries and other places. And, and now we're at the point where what's really going to advance us forward is the ability to have these fluid streamlined manufacturing processes, whether that's at a GMP center um, or at a commercial enterprise, I think that the, there will be differences between those two, but in the end, really being able to do um, highly qualified GMP manufacturing, um, just, just reproducibly, no matter what the scale is really the cutting edge of this. Thank you, Sean. And Chris, what represents the cutting edge for you? And where would you say that is the most need for innovation? Well, I'd really like to, uh, to go a little bit off, uh, what Sean said, I strongly agree that the closed system manufacturer is uh, really where we need to go. And I think from a, obviously I operate in a more of an academic uh, setting and um, one can absolutely bring a phase one and sometimes a phase two trial forward with very traditional open system manufacture. And from my perspective, that really just kicks the can down the road and requires all of the qualification type work that you would have had to do anyway prior to uh, taking it further into phase three or further manufacture. And so a focus on that closed system manufacturing and uh, optimization uh, with an eye towards future uh, commercialization from the very early stages, I think is really important. It's something that we've focused very, uh, very heavily on at Seattle Children's. I also think one an interesting uh, area that again really comes from the the pediatric space is the older days of cell therapy often involved huge doses, uh, large culture bags, a billion cells or more. Sometimes in in my my early days, and uh, I think the development of the final product storage and administration vessel as a as a an integrated a vessel and a thawing device and a tubing set uh, with a with an eye towards integrated thawing at the bedside of a much smaller number of cells, uh, I think is has been really critical for our success and for the development of the systems that uh, we are currently using in our manufacturing operations. Okay, we're now going to turn to cost and funding. So what would you identify as the biggest current challenges in this area? And Chris, we'll stay with you. I think uh, likely one of the most important challenges regarding cost and funding, specifically from the pediatric environment, is just what percentage of that funding for uh, cell therapy and, and oncology research in general actually comes to the, the pediatric space as opposed to the adult space. 
I don't have uh, the exact percentage off the top of my head, but from the last time I looked, it was in the single digits uh, percentage-wise. And so just making sure that uh, that, that requires a, a large uh, a large reliance on philanthropy and sort of uh, non-traditional fundraising sources in order to bring these trials forward and to maintain the manufacturing and R&D expertise required to keep pushing that cutting edge forward. So that will likely always be a challenge, but uh, it certainly is one that uh, we and other people in the pediatric space continue to face. Yeah, that, that's really an interesting point there, Chris. I, I think, you know, Previously, I had some background in medical devices, and I know from the supplier side, it's really a challenge to figure out how do we go through everything needed to develop something that's explicitly for pediatrics when, you know, first, the the overall patient population may be very small, and and two, the sort of safety and efficacy expectations and, and doing the clinical work is, is really very difficult. So that's you know, on the supplier side, it's an interesting challenge to think about how do you successfully develop something that is out of the gate intended for pediatric use. Um, love to spend some time thinking about how we can get better on that. I, I think to add on to that, from our conversations that we have with manufacturers and academic folks, they're they're a little different. Um, you know, one of the things that we really hear a lot, though, is that the facilities required to operate in the current state using open open processes and sort of very manual things are very high cost, very expensive to maintain and operate and make sure that they are up to the standards that are expected. And another one is people. Of course, this is, you know, we're operating in an environment where we've got extremely highly trained folks that are doing these processes. And, you uh, you know, that, that's a that's a big investment, both in time and direct resources. I think the component costs, the supplies and reagents, you know, that'll that'll moderate when we get to scale and when we get to things where we can actually, as a supplier, anticipate what our, our cost of goods are going to be. I think we can come to uh, costs over time. That'll make sense. The, the people in the facilities, I think, is a, a long running challenge that we're going to have to think about. Yeah, and if I can if I can add to that, I certainly agree. Uh, when we look at our cost of goods, well, the cost of goods is a very small overall portion of the cost uh, to manufacture these products, to maintain a a large facility, and to maintain uh, that very talented uh, network of folks, both on the manufacturing side, but also on the quality control and the quality assurance side, the facilities side the operations side is really much closer to uh, biotech startup costs rather than to academic research lab costs. And so figuring out how to fit that into uh, often a non-for-profit um, model uh, can be very challenging. These are expensive therapies to manufacture. And this is, a, of course, a necessary step in bringing them towards first-line therapies for kids throughout the world who don't have access to this kind of research. So, Sean? Uh, from a supplier perspective, what would you say works well or doesn't work well when trying to approach and solve customer challenges? I think one of the things that seems to be working well is the the understanding at a high level of what processes our customers are are carrying on. You know, as a as a supplier, we generally know the manufacturing steps sometimes in quite a lot of detail, and so we can. We can modify things relatively quickly that are already in our toolbox. 
obviously, the more communication and conversations we can have with our customers, the easier it is for us to help uh, develop solutions, either figuring out the right workflow to use existing tools, or in some cases, realizing that there's a specific need and, and developing a modification of a tool or, or a brand new solution. I think one of the things that is harder to address and maybe isn't working well is where are we going to be in five years or 10 years? And and for some of these components, some of these tools, the development cycle on them is 18, 24 months. And, and for that to really be aligned with when people need it, I think earlier conversations about where they're going is really going to be helpful. Um, so that's that's been my perspective, is the more conversations we have with our customers, the easier it is for us to, to help solve the problems. And I think getting involved in what may be coming downstream is going to be important for us to, to align when scale-out processes and scale-out processes are actually needed. I'd really want to echo the uh, the idea of frequent and open communication between uh, users and suppliers. And I would add to that, that often, especially in these early phase trials, um, we find ourselves in unexpected situations or we're using new uh, new equipment that maybe doesn't, new equipment, new supplies that maybe doesn't have, you know, decades of experience. And when something performs in a way that we don't expect, when we have a cell product or a, a patient starting material that doesn't expand the way we want, or in the rare occasions when we have a, an issue with a, a supply, it's just critical to have really open and bi-directional communication uh, between the user and the supplier to get to root cause, to put containment measures in place, and uh, if necessary, to make longer-term changes either, the, either to the process or to the product to uh, avoid recurrence. And Obviously, there's a great deal of expertise both on the user and on the supplier's side uh, when involved in these conversations. And I think the the close and open communication is what makes that a, a, a positive learning experience from unexpected outcomes uh, to develop a better better future state of product. It's um, really nice to hear that kind of a validation of the idea of trying to be open. A lot of people are pretty closed in this in in our experience and. You know, if we don't know what's what is or isn't working on the floor, it's really hard for us to to be responsive. And so, I'm just um, I think that's that's really key. I, I think the other piece of it too is just that you know we're we're growing along with the developers, and and the idea of manufacturing tools specifically for cell and gene therapies is not really older than the cell and gene therapy industry. So, you know, as, as our customers are learning and growing and figuring out how to be successful on this, as GMP centers are um, expanding the, the horizon of what they're taking on in terms of clinical work, that's, that's where we are too. And so I think it's important to recognize that most of us anticipate changes will be needed. And, you know, we're, we're trying to get things out there because we all have the same downstream vision of treating these patients and uh, just a recognition on both sides that they're going to be stumbles and they're going to be wins and we're all in it together. And finally, uh, we're going to look to the future. So what are the biggest lessons gleaned from first generation cell therapies that can be carried forward when defining and developing state-of-the-art cell therapy manufacturing approaches? And Chris, coming to you first. 
Yeah. Um, so I don't know if uh, this is really about the first generation cell therapies or the like 0.5 generation cell therapies, but I think back to the trials that I participated in, in, you know, in the, the beginning of my career in manufacturing back in around, uh, around the year 2000. And I have distinct recollections of six, eight, 10 liter culture bag harvests and, or uh, God forbid, 200 tea flask harvests, pouring the tea flasks into a, into a conical tubes for open system spinning and just generating huge numbers of cells that we would be administering uh, to these patients without a real understanding of somewhere in that giant cell population are the specific cells that are going to make a difference in vivo. And so from my perspective and in terms of the, the scaling of the the scaling of the manufacturing processes to treat more patients, really identifying what is the specific cell type that we would be looking for and expecting to make a difference, optimizing a manufacturing process rather than generating a giant bulk suspension to generating a much smaller number of highly defined cells that we expect to make a difference in vivo, cutting the manufacturing time down from the months of repeated repeated stem cycles over over a period of months to a short-term uh, culture method where we would have cells ready cell product ready for patients much quicker uh, in, in terms of reducing the overall vein to vein time and that giving us a system that can be scaled uh, if we are not spending three months manufacturing a product but instead we're spending seven days that's quite a bit more patients that we could treat with the same facilities, with the same uh, staff requirements. And so, yeah, turning this less from a uh, less from a, a boutique artisanal manufacturing process to something that can be scaled to something that would be amenable to a situation that's much more like assembly line manufacture. Thank you. And Sean, what are the biggest lessons that can be carried forward for you? I think building directly from Chris's discussion of sort of what is the important cell and making sure that we're doing that right to what are the real potency assays that are valuable for this, as opposed to, you know, potency assay shouldn't predict necessarily a clinical outcome, but it should predict clinical function or biological function. And I think we've gone in the last few years from marker-based quasi-potency to developing assays that are really showing these are the intended cells and in this in vitro environment, they should do X and I can consistently get that X. And I think that that's really, as we go forward, then figuring out early on with new concepts, what is going to be the important potency assay, and then using that to define your boundary conditions of your parameters, because that's been missing. And, and if we need to make changes post-licensure, if we need to make manufacturing modifications to make sure that we can actually create a product every time we go through, if you don't know what those boundary conditions are, you can't really do that change very easily. And if you don't have the right potency assay developed early on, you can't define what those boundary conditions are. So I, I think that's really the future is just continuing on that step. Now that we can say we have the right cells, we need to be able to say, and they're doing the right thing. I think that that says it really well. Uh... And being able to, well, yeah, I guess uh, being able to uh, 
understand what would be predictive of, of manufacturing failure specifically uh, in terms of developing a manufacturing process that is relatively relatively tolerant for the unusual and often very different conditions that uh, we would see in patient material from different disease states and just within the same disease state on an individual person-to-person -person variability. Uh, eventually, we're not making widgets quite yet, but eventually in order to in order to scale these processes, we need to have a system that is much more like just making widgets with the same outcome every time. Exactly. Well, thank you to Chris and Sean for such a great conversation. This episode was brought to you in partnership with BioLife Solutions. If you enjoyed listening, don't forget to subscribe to the BioInside podcast.